The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. My name is Margot Landman. I am Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast are Lenora Chu, author of Little Soldiers, An American Boy, A Chinese School, and the Global Race to Achieve, and Gish Jen, author most recently of The Girl at the Baggage Claim, Explaining the East-West Culture Gap. Thank you to both of you for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. Lenora, why did you decide to write about your son's experience at a Chinese preschool and, more broadly, about Chinese and American education? Sure. Well, you know, there's a lot said about Chinese education. It's either the world's best students or it's, you know, rote learning robots, no creativity. And it's a very polarizing narrative. And I happened in 2010 to be moving to Shanghai just as the world's attention was focusing on it. You know, Shanghai teenagers had taken number one in the world on a test called PISA. Of course, American kids felt somewhere in the middle of the pack. And it just so happened that down the street was one of the best state-run schools in all of the city. And we had a son, and we enrolled him. And through this sort of narrative, I had this sort of parenting narrative, as well as the journalism skills, to look into some of these questions. Okay, Gish, who is the girl at the baggage claim, and how did she become the kernel of your latest book? Well, you know, the girl at the baggage claim is a real girl. Um, And she is a girl who, she applied to Milton Academy, which is a very prestigious um, independent school, a little south of Boston. Uh, great TOEFL scores, great essays. Uh, she, they did a Skype interview with her brilliantly on the Skype interview. Um, they admitted her with great enthusiasm. They went to go meet her at Logan Airport. And right away, they felt that something was a little bit off. And. Um, as the semester went on, it, it slowly became clear that the girl who had come was not the girl who, in the Skype interview, um, but her sister. And you know, I was told this story by um, the head, not of Milton, although he did corroborate it, but the head of another independent school. And you know, the way that he told the story, which clearly was making the rounds you know, among all the heads, was that this was a very strange thing. I mean, not that somebody had cheated, because people cheat all the time, but the way in which she had cheated was, was really just very foreign to them. But the minute I heard that story, I thought, actually, this is a pattern I have seen a million times in Asia. And it is actually the tip of a very large iceberg that I think it is time for the, the American public to be aware of. So. And what's the iceberg? Well, the iceberg is the difference in self that dominates in the East and the West. You know, of course, you know, when you say things like the East and the West, you know, all the scholars will immediately say, well, what do you mean by East and what do you mean by West? And, you know, you, and, and, you know, and that's fair. But it is true that the minute you go and you live in Shanghai, you will be immediately aware that you're not in Kansas, right? <laughs> and vice versa, you know? So the answer is that whether you can define East and West or not, there's definitely a gap 
right? And um, in my book, what I talk about is, you know, and this is so related to what Lenora is talking about, um, is that there is foundationally a different self that predominates, you know? Um, and there's, there was a time when if you said something like that, and of course that stuff was all over my fiction, you know, starting in, you know, 1980s when I was writing about this stuff, it's everywhere. But it's really only relatively recently that we have the, you know, the research to back it up, you know? So the, the answer is things that I had known in my bones of what of the nature of this difference um, now has been, has been studied and you know we can talk about it um, I would never want anyone to think that this is a, a matter of black and white and one is one and the other is not um, obviously it's just like the gender difference you know you know it, you know you can't say that men are men and women are women obviously there's a big gray zone in between at the same time you know there is a difference and um, and so that is the subject of my book and I will say that it, it segues you know it, it just is such a great match for Lenora's book because you know when we ask questions like well how is it that the self gets perpetuated you know and the answer is it gets perpetuated by things like the education system mm -hmm. sure yeah that's true while we're talking about that Lenora you describe some actions taken by your son's teachers that might trouble an American sure. reader. I'm thinking, for example, of the force-feeding him the hard-boiled eggs. Sure. Could you describe that episode and how your thinking about it evolved? Sure. So, you know, the first week of school, we're all very excited, and we think we hope he likes Chinese school. And then he comes home and he says, my teacher forced me to eat eggs. And, it, you know, he hates eggs. I've been working on this for a year. And it turns out that she put eggs in his mouth four times. And the last time he had no choice but to swallow. So me, brash in my individual choice, you know, my belief in um, the individual's right to choose, I march off to school and I confront her and I said, you know, in America, we don't use methods of force. And she said, oh, how do you do it? And I said, well, we explain the benefits of eggs and we trust them with the decision to eat or not to eat. And she says very clearly, well, does it work? And I have to admit that it doesn't. And later she scolds me for questioning her methods in front of a child. You know, there's all kinds of incidents like this where it's um, you, you have to defer to authority at all costs. And not only that, in the classroom, there's much more of an emphasis on the group over the individual. You know, if you have asthma, you know, they won't make accommodations for you. There's all kinds of things about the system that perpetuates the needs of the group over that individual. And, and I just think that's really important and relates to Gish work, Gish's work to understand um, when you're thinking about China. Yeah, well, they're, they're making a self, right? And they're making a self that they believe will work in their system. And mm -hmm. here we're making a self, a very different self that we believe will work in our system. Right, right. And the, the truth of the matter is that the givens between China and America are so different, it's really not surprising that the systems should be so, you know, utter, utterly different. I think what is surprising is that we in America should find it surprising that other people, yeah, you know, yeah, have yeah. different methods of dealing with their circumstances because obviously we're in our, you know, this is a very, very rich country. Mm -hmm. It's a big country. It's a roomy country. How could we possibly imagine the things that we, that, you know, the kinds of ways that we have learned to be here would be universal? Of yeah. course they're not. One of the things that comes through very clearly is, and you just alluded to this, that there's a very different relationship between parents and teachers mm -hmm, sure. in the two countries. Mm, that's a really good point. Yes. So there's um, 
I had a sense of parental entitlement when I marched off to talk to Teacher Chen, but that doesn't really exist. I mean, I notice that parents are, are generally quite afraid of their teachers, and it's not really their fault. I mean, there's a cultural, you know, authority, uh, obeisance to authority, but there's also this sort of systemic driver of behavior, and that is the education system. And I, and I feel that we should just spend like two minutes talking about it because that is a major driver of behavior. There's so many individual decisions made in China based on the education system, which is a high stakes, and you have millions of kids dropping off at pretty much every entrance exam, right? And so that kind of anxiety, that driver, it really affects the way you look at life and the way you make decisions. If you ask any parent, oh, how's Cindy? You know, you normally might expect, oh, she's happy. She's loving to play tennis. We go to the museums on weekends. But the answer usually comes back something like this. Oh, out of 47 kids in her class, she's eighth in Chinese, ninth in math, and 24th in physics. You know, there's, it's all about um, performance. And, and that also drives behavior. And that's something to understand. Yeah, but of course, you know, we have a lot of competition here, too. That's know. true. Uh, because my kids attended schools in Shanghai, uh, Beijing, Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, well, no, actually it was a Singaporean school in Hong Kong, um, as well as public and private schools <laughs> in the Boston area. Uh, you know, I've seen a lot of systems. And honestly, when it comes to things like math, um, you know, my I went to a, a parent evening, um, a, a Buckingham Brown and Noble, and... Um, Brown and Nichols, actually. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, the parents were so intense. I mean, they sat there with their clipboards, you know, kind of like, okay, so they're doing uh, fractions in Japan. What are you doing? You know, kind of. Uh, the parents were like crazy yeah, people. Yeah. And, and, and not, not only the students, but the teachers were under an incredible amount of pressure. In fact, my take-home lesson was, on no account should you allow your child to grow up to be a math teacher in an independent school. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, those, 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 those math teachers, I mean, like I say, every lesson was being parsed by the parents. But so you know, it is, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not disagreeing, but I think the nature of the, the ultimate um, goal of the pressure is different. You know, in other words, but the but there's survival this, versus there's a lot of pressure here too. Sure, but but here's the thing. I mean, a lot of China journalists talk about the last few years. What's happening in Cambridge and New York City is not that different. What's happening in Shanghai anymore, right? You know, we're we're getting closer. We're all thinking about the same things. We're all applying really to the same schools. The Chinese are now coming over mm. three hundred fifty thousand a year. You know, in our, our American universities right. at every level. So. You know, I think that is kind of driving the competitiveness here in some sense as well. You don't Absol think? Absolutely. Absolutely. That is so true because what they were worried about BBNN is what are they doing in Japan? What are they doing in Shanghai? Right. Do you right. mean are we keeping up? Are we falling behind? Right. So it's become kind of the circular craziness. It is. Where, you know, it is craziness. We're making them crazy. They're making us crazy. It is and it's just go and, and the children are, you know, are the victims of this. Right. There's no question about it. Mm. By the end of the book, you seem to come out in favor at least of Chinese preschool and maybe primary school. Is there a point at which you think that Chinese school will not be good for your children? Oh, sure. And what <laughs> might stimulate the shift from a Chinese to a Western schooling system? Assuming um, that you're still in Shanghai. Right, right. That's a good question. Um, I make it very clear by the end of the book. Um, 
which doesn't usually come across in, you know, shorter pieces. But by the end of the book, you know, most Chinese and foreigners who look at the system with critical eyes, we realize there's a hard stop because once you start pushing up against entrance exams and the political the political brain, you know, curriculum in later years, <laughs> the later primary years starts getting really intense. And also you don't want your child too long in an environment where its teacher knows best. You know, right now we we solve that dilemma because his teacher knows best in the classroom, but he comes home and he has an equal seat at the table. You know, we're, we're sort of mixing that what I like to think East and West, right? Group versus individual authority versus self. Um, but when I start seeing that, you know, the negatives outweigh the positives, we'll, we'll pull them out. And there's no real answer for everybody. You know, when you think about education reform here, I just, I feel like it's such a hot topic, but you know, what we should be thinking about what are the, the strengths of our experiences and what are the deficiencies and how do we make up for them, you know? You started out by talking about differences of the self, but you didn't define the different selves. Can you do a little bit of yeah, that sure. for us? Well, you know, I talk about the difference of self as being um, a difference in the emphasis on the um, unique, your uniqueness, is the really being the defining thing. It's not that people in Asia are less individual than we are here. What's different is the, um, the amount of emphasis we place on that. So, you know, in my book, I talk about here in the West, we, we imagine ourselves as being kind of like avocados. We all have a very big pit. Um, it's a sacred pit, you know, and everything, we do everything to develop that pit. Um, we are very interested in the freedom of that pit. And basically, we are a pit-oriented society. Other places in the world, and I will say that this is not just Asia, it's really, it's Asia, it's Africa, it's South America, it's Central and Eastern Europe, and I will say there are a lot of people in the United States also, in small towns in the South, many, many places, where the self that dominates is a flexi self. So the idea is that, you know, you are still a self, and you're, a, you're still a person with agency, like the idea that somehow this other self is passive is completely wrong. But what is different is that they aren't, you know, it's it, the development of their pit is not the primary thing. So, you know, so you can be very actively, you know, in the streets, you know, protesting, doing all these things, using your voice, but what are you doing? Well, you're, you're, you know, you're advocating on, on behalf of religious freedom so that you can practice you know, you, because you're a practicing Muslim and that's what is important to you. In other words, so it's, the funny thing is that, you know, both, both sides are very active, but finally where they're drawing their meaning is different. So one is very much more respectful and interested in tradition, believes there's a lot of value in tradition. The other believes that really all the great truths lie within. And I will say that, you know, this is a very modern self. I mean, even not only is it a, is a, a self that has reached, you know, a worldwide heights here in America, but you know, it's just very recently so. So that even if we look at um, post-war America, you know, I'm post-World War II America, um, you know, that generation, you know, is much more like today's Asian Americans. Do you know what I mean? In other words, you know, so they are also looking at the young people thinking like, whoa, you know, individualism has really um, achieved a height here in America that they would never have imagined. And I think a lot of them also feel that perhaps, um, it's time to take stock and ask ourselves, you know, have we gone too far in this direction? Unfortunately, we're mm -hmm. at the end of our time, but I thank you both very much for talking with me today. Thank you, Thanks, Margo. Margo.